0: Sasswut is a podcast about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit SASWAT.com. This is SAS What, a podcast about Bigfoot. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Breedlove. I'm joined tonight by my pal Mark Matsky. Greetings from Southeast Ohio, Bigfoot Mecca.
1: <laughs> all, all of Southeast it Ohio. Is, yep. From Columbus. Just <laughs> fan out in a southeasterly direction.
0: Just look out. Yeah. Bigfoot time. Everywhere. Driving down the road, uh, mm-hmm. skateboarding on the sidewalk. Yep. All over. Riding a tractor. Yeah. In and out of coffee shops. Um, <laughs> this week we are doing a part two to an episode we did a couple months ago, uh, Untold History of Sasquatch. And uh, if you remember that episode, we talked about sightings that um, might not be as in the public eye as the quote unquote classics. So... This is uh, one of my favorite subjects, parts of the subject, I guess, as a whole of Bigfoot, which is kind of the smaller scale, maybe not smaller in scale at all, actually, but these lesser-known uh, sightings, flaps, what have you. And uh, last time we talked about a lot of really older sightings. I think this time we're going to go and kind of move forward a little bit, and we'll probably do some of those older sightings as well, but we're going to talk about some of the uh, maybe less popular Bigfoot sightings, Um, we both have ones we wanted to get into, so um, I'm going to let you start us off, Mark. All right. I'd like to talk about Momo. Yes. Because
1: Momo is one that, when I first heard about it, it was kind of a breakthrough moment for me because it was moving me out of the Pacific Northwest as sort of Bigfoot's home base, and it was the realization that in the heartland, there's a lot of weird stuff that's gone on as well. And this, the Momo case, and of course that's short for Missouri Monster, and that may in fact be a another case of a newspaper editor or a reporter, you know, coming up with that uh, snappy sort of moniker for a creature. But This came out of that magic time that was the 1970s, where it seemed like there's just this explosion of uh, realization of Bigfoot in your own backyard, and this was... We can pinpoint this um, to 1972. Um, Actually, the the first part of this is in 71 in July. And this reports about Momo start in a a fashion that's almost cinematic. I mean, you can completely imagine this being an episode out of a movie where um, two women, Joan Mills and Mary Ryan, were uh, looking for a spot to have a picnic uh, just in the summertime. Uh, they were fi- they found a pretty nice site and they were on this dirt road they start to put out their blanket and uh, their food and stuff and the first thing that tipped them off to something strange going on was a a, uh, a pungent odor and at first they thought well it's probably like a family of skunks or something but over her friend's shoulder uh the the one lady saw in this uh, brushy thicket Uh, from about the waist up, uh, what she described as a half-ape, half-man. And after the experience, you know, she started reading up on all this Bigfoot and abominable snowman stuff. And she said uh, this was definitely, while it had gorilla-like tendencies, it was really more human, uh, more like a hairy human, she said. And it made a little gurgling sound like someone trying to whistle underwater. And there's a picturesque description for you. So... um, as if that wasn't enough, the creature stops, steps out of the brush towards them. They run to their car and lock the doors. Uh, the creature kept making this gurgling sound and uh, actually sort of rubbed the, <laughs> the hood of the car and then tried to open the doors, like it actually went for the handles and tried to get the doors open. So um, they had the presence of mind to uh, blow the car horn. And uh, it startled the creature. It jumped straight in the air, evidently, moved back. They kept beeping the horn. And they, they did this because uh, in the middle of this whole thing, they made the realization that um, her purse was still out there on the picnic blanket. So, and, and the keys were in her purse to the car. So they had to try and, and get rid of the creature. And the car horn seemed to be working. Um, It it seemed to realize that the horn wasn't dangerous. It stopped right at their picnic site and picked up the sandwich, ate the sandwich, and then uh, picked up the purse, dropped it, and then walked off into the woods. And so uh, Joan Mills ran out of the car, grabbed her purse and the keys, and they tore back to St. Louis and actually submitted a report to the Missouri State Patrol. So that incident kicked off what would become... You know, a real flap of sightings uh, kind of centered around one family, uh, the Harrison family. And there's a a somewhat famous story about July 11th, 1972, where Terry and Wally Harrison, uh, eight and five years old, were outside playing and older sister Doris, Uh, was inside, she heard them scream, and she looked out the bathroom window and saw a seven-foot-tall, black, hairy creature standing by a tree, and it was flecked with blood because it had a dead dog under its arm. Mm -hmm. And the Harrison's dog got sick shortly after that, and that started uh, Edgar Harrison, their father, on sort of this crusade to try
0: and find out the truth about Momo. It seems like Momo really hated dogs, just in general. But uh, one of my favorite things about Momo was the title of the first story that centered around Momo, uh, which ran in 1972 July. Uh, it's just titled "There's Something on Marzolf Hill." Yeah, which sounds like the title of an old like B horror movie. <laughs> yes, it does. And uh, but yeah, I was gonna read a little bit. Of that article, but you basically already talked about it. That article centered around the Harrison family and the mm-hmm. the uh, the boys uh, seeing something in the backyard. It doesn't go into the death of the dog at all, but um, uh, they did call it a monster Bigfoot bear. So they had three mm. different, you know, all together in this one article, a monster, a Bigfoot bear, so. Mm. Um, But these articles, I've got uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I've got at least 15 cataloged in here, documented uh, newspaper articles about Momo. One of them includes an awesome illustration of Momo kind of roaring out of the night. But the interesting thing about Momo is the amount of UFO activity associated with this case. Um, I don't know if you're aware of that stuff, but there was tons of UFOs. Uh, seen in that area, maybe not tons, but there was a lot of UFO sightings in the area at that time. There was UFO investigators uh, in the area. In fact, I'm looking at one right now. UFO expert camps out but sees no monster. Hmm. And uh, this is in the early 70s. You know, there's this period of time from like 71, 72 up until probably like 80, 81, where this was completely common. I mean, there was... sure almost every day in somewhere across the United States, there was a newspaper article detailing a local monster. Um, but Momo is one of my favorites. Um, yeah. The fascinating thing for me about
1: Momo is the, the dad's uh, sort of obsession with proving that this whole thing was true. Mm-hmm. You know, and he, he gets to a point it, you know, there's elements sort of of close encounters where somebody becomes obsessed about finding the truth about something. In his case, you know, he took a leave of absence from his job and spent uh, 21 consecutive nights camping out trying to get a bead on the reality of this creature Mm -hmm. and felt that he had kind of determined that Momo could use his uh, pungent odor as like a smokescreen almost or to throw people off. Like he could direct it in one direction and he would the monster would take off in another and leave the you know investigators just completely empty-handed, right. and just so just that angle of the story to me there's something kind of human and compelling about that. Like this dad wanted to really turn up some sort of definitive proof that this was going on.
0: Yeah, and they uh, the family held like a uh, uh, like a prayer meeting one night in their backyard. Do you know that yeah. story? Yeah. And then the creature supposedly came out of the woods and kind of, I don't know if anything happened beyond that. Did it just come out of the woods and terrify everyone? Well,
1: I I think the way that that went down is that they could hear it coming. Mm -hmm. They could hear it getting closer and closer and making uh, sort of this uh, growling sound, loud growl. And his family wouldn't allow him to stick around and actually see it. They pleaded and begged him to let's get out of here, which they did. Uh, they drove away before anything was actually sighted, but yeah, it's uh,
0: it, it's it's intense, you know. You and can't he, you can't play down the importance of it too. I'm looking at an article that was in Oklahoma City right now in July. This would have been July '72 as well, and this these sightings don't end in '72. Um, I have reports here from '73 as well, um, articles from '73 mm-hmm. as well. Um, But this article says zoo director offers home for the creature. And this was the Oklahoma City City Zoo uh, basically, you know, joking around saying, come, come stay with us, monster, Mm -hmm. come stay with us. So, (laughs) um, yeah, this, this, I think a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight is probably these uh, smaller town sightings, small town monster sightings. Um, I've got one close to me that I've talked about a few times on the show and if you follow the blog at all i've i've blogged about it because this was one of the first things that i had researched on my own was the uh sightings here close to where i live in wadsworth ohio of the river sticks monster there's a town near where i live called river sticks it's a tiny little village out in the middle of nowhere um between here and medina um called river sticks and the first sighting that I've got on the BFRO database is from actually, let me see. I pulled it up and now I lost it. Um, no, that's 2076. So, so 1976, there's a sighting, um, right outside of actually right outside of, Where I live now on Greenwich Road, uh, this lady said, I just read of a woman who is now 39. Her sighting was in 76. That blew me away. My sighting was the same year. I was 12 years old when my parents built our house right next to my grandparents and then over a footbridge to my great-grandparents' house. Um, She goes on talks about running around in the woods and says... um, I can remember it was warm out, sunny, the leaves were falling. Since we were heading into fall, the air smelled of leaves. I was standing on my great-grandparents' property. With permission, I could basically go all the way back to the highway, usually with a friend. I was told never to go further than great-granny's woodline. That day, I went further past her woodline into the woods that was on the right-hand side of the road. Through the woods was another family's home. Home. I started walking through the forbidden path and about halfway through is when I saw something Brown and hairy in a squatting position. At first I thought it was a dog. Then it stood up. It was at least seven feet tall or more. I stood there in a frozen position and stared at it. I ran before it could turn around. I was in total fear. The back was covered in hair. The arms hung down. It had very broad shoulders. The body was covered in Brown hair. Um, and that was a BFRO report that was submitted in 2004 and her sighting was back in 76. Mm -hmm. Um, there was another sighting out on River Sticks, right. Actually, right by that exact same location, um, over by Greenwich Road, which I I know right where that is. It's not, not far at all from where I am. Actually, um, let me see. I lost one of these that I had. There's one from '78. Um, so I did research into this. This was like one of the first ones that I I really like looked into, and it was mostly because I was, you know, obviously it's close to where I live, so. It's easy to look into. Um, interesting thing about River Styx is that it, it got its name because there was a swamp there. And there still is a lot of swamp and, and forest and, and river and streams and all that. It's, it's very uh, sparsely populated farm country. Not that it's completely, you know, no one's living out there. But there's a lot of farms and stuff, but, but also big chunks of woods. And um, it it got its name because of uh, the swamp, which they said was a vast, impenetrable swamp that was inhabited by black bear, cougar, and rattlesnake. Hmm. Um, and anyone who went in there died. So um, it's kind of cool to think that maybe even back when the settlers formed the village of River Sticks, there might have been something. Now, having said that, I have asked around out in River Styx and none of the locals that I've talked to knew what I was talking about. Hmm. Not not that I talked to. I mm-hmm. do know that there are people out there because I've heard stories from other people recounting people from that area, telling them about seeing this thing or knowing someone that saw this thing, but it's not very well known. I don't think it's exactly popular especially now because it looks like most of these sightings were 70s and then up into the two early 2000s and if you go out there now it kind of makes sense because that area is becoming more and more developed especially around it um so i don't know if maybe you know 70s i imagine there was probably far less development out there obviously yeah Did Um, any of those reports make the papers back then no is, no so it's a lot of local knowledge really it's it's all just locals um there's i spent hours at the Wadsworth library going through microfilm trying to f- turn up something cuz i couldn't find any newspaper articles about it now that's not to say there isn't there might be something there might you know be like a an article that ran that i just never found um but as far as anything i could turn up it definitely isn't something that is it's not well known. The river sticks mm-hmm. monster. I don't think is very well known. There is a, a listener of the show who's, who actually lives out in river sticks and he was aware of it. So I, and I do know that people out there are some people out there are aware of it, but it's not a, it's not even a Minerva monster situation where it's like 50, 50. I think with the river sticks monster, it's f- few and far between people that live out there being aware mm-hmm. of it. But the stories are very interesting and they're, um, almost all right along River Styx Road and usually in areas that are super wooded um, and usually following a stream. So that's what's my... the, the profile, doesn't it? Exactly. Thing. Yeah. Excellent.
1: And that's just got a great name, too. That needs Ex- to yeah. be more well-known mm-hmm. just on the strength of that name, too. Yeah. Incredible. I've got a report here and this goes back to Uh, 1965 the thing that really caught my eye about this is in light of sort of the uh, aggressive Bigfoot and you know we've talked about that quite a bit Mm -hmm. but this goes back to World War II in the Siskiyou Mountains Um, the owner of a lock and safe company uh, by the name of O.R. Edwards was out hunting and Edwards says this is you know again this Took place in the southern Siskiyou's uh, during World War II. He saw a large man like creature covered with brown hair, about seven feet tall, carrying in its arms what seemed like a man. I could only see legs and shoes. It was heading straight downhill on the run. Uh, I, of course, did not believe what I had just seen, so I closed my eyes and shook my head to sort of clear things up. Looked down the hill again in time to see the back and shoulders of, and head of a man like thing covered with brown hair disappearing into the brush some 70 to 80 yards below and it emitted a whistle slash scream and that's really about it as far as detail with the the case but i just thought it was interesting given the interest in you know kidnapping bigfoot uh you know certainly there's other documented stories but lately there's just been this rash of uh aggressive Bigfoot and carrying people off and, and missing in the national parks and things of that nature. And here's one that could potentially be, uh, well, you know, who knows what it was, but to to have that take place as far back as the 40s is
0: intriguing, to say the and least. And that's, that's a time without a lot of reports. I mm-hmm. don't know what it is about the 1940s, but across America, especially Ohio, There are not a lot of Bigfoot reports or possible Bigfoot Mm -hmm. reports or any monster reports, probably because of World War II. Right. I'd imagine the public eye is on that.
1: Sure. And your pool of men who would be out there, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, hunting or otherwise engaged in some outdoor activity were, you know, on another
0: field entirely. Sure, sure. Um, The uh, 1902 February of 1902... um, I came across this report, and this is the only report, so there's not a lot to it, but I love the headline, which is, uh, Flee from Swamp Monster, Virginia Terror, Kills Seven Dogs and Eats Two. Whoa. Um, Suffolk, Virginia, February 11th. L. Frank Ames, merchant of Bennett's Creek, 13 miles from Suffolk, last night, had an experience with the Dismal Swamp Monster, which earlier this week killed seven of Edward Smith's dogs, ate two of them, and attacked Smith himself. Ames shot the thing several times without effect and urged his six dogs to make an attack. The dogs fled in terror and hid. The monster escaped unharmed and was seen later, sitting complacently on the curbing of Henry Jordan's wall. Um, it go- there, there is more to it. It's described as long, gaunt form, standing on two legs, vicious eyes, shaggy yellow hair. Whoa. So it's a really interesting report. I don't know if it's uh, it's 1902, mm-hmm. and I could turn up nothing else through searching for the Dismal Swamp Monster. If someone else does any of this newspaper uh, archive stuff like I do, you can feel free to look around. Um, mm-hmm. But that was that was all taking place in Virginia. Um, what do you back... make of what do you make of the yellow hair
1: detail? Yeah, I th-
0: I thought that was really interesting, and it it almost put me in mind of maybe. Um, maybe this was a mountain lion. Hmm. You know, I mean, maybe they saw something. You know, maybe the guy thought it was running around on two legs, and it was a mountain lion. It just doesn't. There's things about it that that it's either some sort of overdramatized event to sell papers, or uh, might have been a, a misidentification. The yellow. I've never heard. Have you ever heard of Shaggy yellow hair?
1: No, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, the the thing that the only connection that I can make is. We've talked about white Bigfoot. And, you know, you've seen sometimes when a person's hair goes white, mm-hmm. it's not pure white, but it's sort of almost blonde in a way. And, and sure. maybe that would be a, a potential connection there. Uh, that's stretching though. <laughs> no. I mean, sure. the thing with the dogs, though, is pretty interesting. And, and, you know, you mentioned as part of the initial Momo report, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a close up view of that. But also with Momo, there was uh, Edgar Harrison found two dog graves that had been disinterred, and the bones spread out after the fact. So it, that's a whole thing unto itself. This whole antipathy between Bigfoot and dogs. There's just uh, a lot of bad blood
0: there. Well, another thing that that comes up in all of these is uh, let me let me just real quick. We can go to this one, and then you can get another one here. But this is from. For some reason, this is back before I was cataloging these with a date, so I don't have a date on this one. It just says uh, New York Monster article, but it's it's out of New York. It looks like 70s. I'm going to guess sometime in the 70s, but um, I thought there was some... some really uh, cool quotes in here. Stories of the monster of Blackhand Gorge, or the Claylick Creature, whichever you prefer, are spreading. Mrs. Cindy Nethers, Route 4, said the monster has been sighted on her property, and she believes something is going on up here, but I'm not sure what it is. Mrs. Nethers says the real problem is not the so-called monster, but the people looking for it. People are coming up here from town with rifles, bows, and arrows, and one man, I believe it was last Thursday, came up here with a bazooka. (laughs) <laughs> We're more afraid of people with guns than any monster. Why you can't hardly shoot a deer with a bow and arrow, let alone a bear. Some believe the alleged monster is nothing more than a bear, and then it goes on to talk about the monster and it's another one of these hair covered creatures walking mm-hmm. like a man. Is um, that the
1: Black Hand Gorge, uh, just east of Newark, Ohio? Does it?
0: No, this is New York. New York. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. This the is other New York. Black Hand Gorge. Right. It's that other one. <laughs> Um, but I thought the the mention of the posse of people, uh, you know, obviously running through, yeah, there. I mean, I, I I'm starting to feel like the monster hunting posse is a must-have for a story to really gain classic status with me. Mm-hmm. You know, you've almost got to have guys out in the woods, drunk, looking for Bigfoot yep. for me to really think it's it's fun. Um, and, and this is a, a just a common, this is like a staple of so many 1970s reports. It
1: really is. And you remember the legend of Boggy Creek. I mean, there's a whole section in that film devoted to the monster hunting posse, mm-hmm. dogs and everything, you know, hunting, you know, trained to, to track the creature. Yeah. There is a series of reports that, I just have to mention here again, and it comes out of the 1960s in southwestern Michigan. It's the Monster of Sister Lakes, and Sister Lakes, Michigan, as I said, is uh, directly north of South Bend, Indiana, and south of Grand Rapids. If that helps anybody geographically to get a sense of where it is, um, it was like I said, it was a series of sightings. Uh, there were. It was centered around a strawberry farm, actually, and uh, strawberry workers, local residents. Uh, In 1962, the Sister Lakes creature was described a lot like Momo, uh, with very little in the way of facial detail. Um, Huge, hairy, no neck, that that classic description. Mm -hmm. In 64, May of 1964, the Sister Lakes monster caused the fruit pickers to leave the fields, They just didn't want to go out and work anymore because this thing was around so much. And on June 9th of 64, uh, one of the workers by the name of Gordon Brown and his brother uh, clearly saw the creature in their car headlights, and they estimated it was about 9 feet tall and really rigid, sort of, in its posture. Uh, The farmers who owned the uh, strawberry farm uh, Evelyn and John Eutrup, uh reported several encounters of their own and uh, there's a kind of a very close name here to one you're very familiar with, uh, Gail and Patsy Clayton uh, froze in fear when these 13 uh, year old girls saw the creature on a lonely road in Silver Creek Township mm-hmm. and this then is often linked, f- just because they are Michigan reports, And the years, uh, 1965 then, is when you get into that very well-known case from Monroe uh, Mm -hmm. where Christine Van Acker is sitting in the car and a hand reaches in and kind of bashes her head against the inside of the car. And she received a black eye from that, and it made all sorts of wire reports and and so forth. So little the the thing that's really interesting about that is in both cases you're talking about southern Michigan uh which is you know you're talking about in the case of monroe you're you're a stone's throw from Detroit and uh the other sister lakes i mean that's far from what you would think of as remote and wooded um, mm-hmm. so it just makes it a a kind of an odd place for these type of reports to come out of. And there's more, you know, in, in the case of Michigan, uh, in, in and around Monroe, which is, uh, seems like an illogical place really for Bigfoot to be
0: hanging out. Yeah. But what's a logical place? (laughs) Uh, all right. We're gonna, we're gonna wrap it up here. Um, these, some of these sightings are, are well known. Some of them are not as well known. Um, I find that I am... The the stories I love are ones that are either so far-fetched that the storyteller is just doing a wonderful job of creating nonsense. Um, Or they're so tied into modern reports, like things I can look at. Even like the mention of the dogs, all those dogs being killed. I don't know if that report's real. There's so little information from that report that it's Mm -hmm. hard to tell anything. But... I I find those correlations to be um compelling worth looking into mm-hmm. and um so my favorite stories are always have some sort of connection to to modern sightings I think
1: yeah and recently too for various reasons it's been brought to my mind and uh I've started to favor these reports where there's a real name attached to that where mm-hmm. it's not just anecdotal where you know, three teenagers reported seeing something come out of the woods on Lover's Lane. But it's a person that you can, uh, you know, uh, potentially contact or at least let their, their report go on some type of public record. And to me, there, that's, you know, we got into this a little bit with our Bigfoot community discussion. But the willingness to put your name attached to any of these type of stories, I mean, mm-hmm. is... You're taking a big leap by doing that, whether you realize it or not. Uh, you're you're opening yourself up to a little scrutiny. And to me, that um, that argues for a couple things. Either one is just ignorance and you don't realize what you're getting into by being public about it. or uh, more you know, the second option there would be um, you saw what you saw and you don't care who thinks what about you, but you're willing to uh, have, you know, be identified with this strange occurrence. Sure. Okay.
0: Join the conversation at facebook.com slash sasswatt. Find us on Twitter by using the hashtag sasswhat, or you can find me on Twitter at Seth Breedslove. Mark Matsky is on Twitter at Reverend Matsky. Send your letters to sasswhatmail@gmail.com at gmail.com and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. <laughs>